Amen. If you're glad to be in God's house today, say amen. 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 That's good. You know, I just want to say uh, happy Independence Day, America. I mean, we're thankful. Uh, we live in a great country. And uh, what a blessing it is to be a, uh, an American and uh, to live in America, to know, uh, you know, that, that so many years ago, uh, 246 years ago or something like that, they, they considered the birth of America, American independence by their declaration of independence. And they signed that on Ju- July 4th, our founding fathers. And, you know, what a, what a wonderful thing it is to, to be a free nation, to be a free people. Um, and I'm thankful for that, and I know that each one of us can appreciate that. Um, I want to I want to pray. I know that uh, I want you to know something about me that I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart, and um, God has, has, as we sang this morning, God is faithful, His love is unfailing, <laughs> and He's so good. And and you know the things that I look at in my life have, have um, uh, been working with the Lord and doing what he's asked me to do, to be here, to speak to you all this morning. Um, what, a, what a wonderful thing um, that, that when God calls us and we respond in faith to his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, let me pray for us this morning. Loving Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this time. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have to, to worship you as our, as our hearts dictate. And Father, we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who gave his life for each one of us. Father, that we might be made free not only now, but for all eternity. And Father, we thank you for, the, for the, the, just setting us free from, from the bondage of sin and addiction and the other things that, that bind us. But Father, what a joy it is to serve you and to love you. Father, I pray that you would be with us today as we look at your word. Holy Spirit, these are your words. So I pray that you would just be in and through all of it, that you would illuminate it for us. Father, that we would understand what your word is saying to us today. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Guide us as we seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we think about and continue on in Romans chapter 8, if you have your scripture and want to open it up, uh, we're, we have one of these mountain peak verses today that I want to uh, try to unpack for you if we can in the time that we're allotted. But um, Romans eight twenty eight is the verse. And, um, you know, one of the most helpful things that you can learn with regard to your Christian life is how to handle the trials that inevitably come your way. I mean, we, we sometimes think that when we give our life to Jesus that somehow all of our troubles are going to be gone. But that's not true. We face trials in life. And, and, you know, Jesus explained that there are some who receive the word with joy. <laughs> but their faith is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution comes because of the word, and when that hits them, immediately they fall away. I don't want that to be true of us, that we hear the word and then when affliction or persecution comes, man, we're gone, we're done, we're out of here. See, they didn't handle affliction or understand how to handle it. They signed up for success, but instead they got suffering. They wanted prosperity, not persecution. So they fell away when the trials hit. See, it's especially in times of suffering. 
In times of suffering that Satan, whom Peter says, and he describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Folks, that is what, when when suffering hits, that, that is who we see as Satan trying to devour us. And it's essential that our spiritual survival depends on that you know and apply what the Bible teaches about trials. Look at this verse in Romans 8, 28. It says this, it says, for we know and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, what we know, what we know can change our perspective on things. Let me give you a couple of examples. I mean, suppose you're walking along and a person jumps out at you and and you find yourself surrounded by a fire and then you're caught in a flood. Naturally, you're going to be terrified unless you know that you are at Universal Studios and these things are all a part of their special effects. I mean, what you know can change your perspective. You may face intense abdominal pain and your natural reaction would be to be very concerned and maybe even wondering if you're going to die unless you know that you're nine and a half months pregnant and you may even feel like a, a rush of excitement then and an anticipation of what's to come. Or maybe you receive a check in the mail for $10,000 and man, you're, you're excited about it, you're giddy about it. You say, man, $10,000, who can't use 10 grand? And then you realize that the, the check that it's written on is a loan And they're going to charge you exorbitant interest on that loan if you cash that check. See, what you know can change your perspective on things. And I think we need to understand that because what we know does change our perspective. In our text this morning, Paul, he says, he tells us that we know. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Folks, this is very comforting to us. It's comforting when we know and and it's a perspective altering promise in the word of God. And this morning I asked three questions, three questions. How do we know this promise is true? How do we know this promise is true? The second one is what is it that we can claim is true? And third, how does this truth change our approach to living our lives? So first off, I just want to say, how do we know this is true? See, Paul declares that we know that God is working all things for the good. (laughs) You know, that's a great sentiment, didn't it? I mean, God's working all things for the good. Oh man, we, 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 it's something we want to be true. We want to know that. And, and, and how, however, I just asked the, the question, how do we know this promise is true? And, and, and let's face it, as we look around, much of the time, it appears that nothing good is happening. Our lives are in shambles. We've got problems with family. We've got problems with neighbors. We've got problems with other countries. We've got problems with our nation. We've got all these challenges going on all around us. There's wars. There's relationship problems, financial difficulties, devastating diseases, tragedies, and a host of people who are looking to make others victims. 
So if we can't know this promise is true by looking around, how can we conclude that it's true at all? See, the, the first reason we know that it's true is because God's word tells us it is true. I believe in the authority of God's word. I believe God says what he means. I believe he is faithful to his word. I believe the promises that God has told me through his word. See, I believe that God has spoken through his word to us and he's given us these promises because we know and, and, and that is why we know is because God can be trusted. <laughs> the Bible tells us that God is in control of the world and what happens in it. He, it's under his supervision, it's under his guidance and, and many times and in many places we're told that God rules over all things. Let me give you a couple of examples. First Samuel chapter two. This was Hannah, the mother of Samuel. She declares this in verse six through nine. She says, the Lord kills and the Lord, excuse me, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. It all belongs to him. It's under his control. Daniel chapter two, verse 20. says this, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Proverbs 16, last one, King Solomon. King Solomon said this in verse nine, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Amen. See, God is in control and he can alter any situation and produce any effect that he desires. See, these passages don't tell us that God causes everything to happen. What they tell us is that God has authority over everything. And God can use any circumstance in any way that he chooses. See, there are several of these kinds of verses scattered throughout the Bible that tell us that God is in control. And in addition to these explicit statements, there's also uh, this truth is illustrated in, in people's lives within the Bible. I want to give you this one. Remember the great testimony of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph was abused by his brothers. His very own brothers sold him into slavery. Think about that. Rejected by his own family. He was falsely charged with rape. He was forgotten for years in the prison system. 
And after he got out of prison, he met his brothers. And for the first time in years, they thought that he would punish them with revenge. But this is what Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You know, think about the scriptures. Think about the patriarchs. Think about all of these people. You you have Abraham, God working in Abraham's life. You have Moses, you have Ruth, Tamar, David, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Jonah, Daniel, Job, and so many more. We see God at work in their life. And all of these people discovered that in spite of difficult times, God was working for their good and for his glory. All through scripture. Of course, the best example of this principle is Jesus. I mean, in spite of the bitter rejection, in spite of the cruel beatings and the tragic death on the cross, hung on the cross, stripped in humiliation after being beaten, hanging there, left to die. God was working through these things for our good. I also want to show you this morning that the Bible tells us that God loves me. He loves us. He loves each one of us. I love this because the the, the argument that, that Paul gives in Romans 8 is simple. Verse 32, he says this, he says, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. He is the one who condemns. Or excuse me, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? He gave us his son. The argument's simple. God has proved his love in giving us his son. Because you see, the reality is none of us would love God if he had not loved us first. But we heard the gospel. We heard that there was a God who loved us so much that he gave his only son for us as a sacrifice for our own sin so that we could be with him for all eternity. We heard the gospel and in that love, God gave his only begotten son that if we would believe, we would have eternal life. And so we respond in faith and and, and with that, we now love him and he changed our hearts from being hostile towards him to actually desiring to please him because we love him. See, if God is in control, and he is, and since he's already invested heavily in us through Christ, proving his love, then we need to know, we need to know that God is not going to let anything bad happen to us. He is working circumstances, 
for our good and for his glory. That's the kind of father and God that he is. You know, the last way we can know is by our personal experience. You know, our personal experience is always the most potent testimony (laughs) that we have. It may not be the most reliable, but it's the most powerful testimony is our testimony, your testimony. I mean, we don't have to look very far back in our lives to see a whole litany of circumstances that seem to have just worked out. You know it and I know it. We say, man, that worked out great. Oh, that just worked out. Maybe, just maybe God is working circumstances for our good. But we don't give him thanks. We just say, well, that, that, that worked out. I mean, I can c- count many times when I had the feeling and the thought, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. But somehow, I found strength, supernatural strength, helping me. And you have too. It's your testimony. It's your personal experience. See, we can see that the times of faith grew most. The times when we grew most was when the times were most difficult. And and it causes us to grow. We can look back and see that our our hearts were encouraged, that we were drawn closer to Jesus in a difficult, difficult time. And it caused us to grow and our hearts were boosted because of our own times of suffering. See, we can know, we can know that God is working in and through our lives because of the promises in his word. Because of the examples that we see in the Bible, because of the evidence that we have of God's love, but also because of our own personal experience. All of this is wrapped up in this verse to know. And we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So what is it that we should know? (laughs) You know, a good place to start is what the promise doesn't say, okay? Don't hear what the promise is not saying. It's important that we read this promise carefully. We must not make it say more than it actually says. I mean, Paul doesn't tell us that all things are good. That's not what he's saying. There are many things in life that are not good. The Bible never implies that war or disease or divorce or abuse or injustice or tragedy or inflation or immorality or abusive government regimes and so forth are good things. The Bible never embraces that. It never implies that. Those are evil things. The Bible does not tell us that everything is good. And the command does not say that this good that God brings about (laughs) is according to our definition of good. Uh, Oh, wow, wait a minute, Ridge. You had to go there. Because you see, it's best to understand that God is working all things for ultimate good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. See, our definition of good is more like (laughs) that which is easy. 
Oh, it was so good. I just showed up. I didn't have to do anything. It was so good. Those things that we think of as being pleasant, those are what we call good. Those things that that satisfy us. Oh man, that glass of iced tea was so good. That's how we think of good. But that's not God's definition of good. We need to understand that. Because God's definition of good, you know, is, is, is that which prepares us and conforms us to the image of his son and prepares us for our home in heaven with him. It readies us for, for heaven. See, our, our definition of good, I mean, if it was up to us, we would never go through physical training. We would never want to take a test. We would certainly never go through labor or a surgery that involved any kind of pain. Because we're short-sighted. And we define the word good by what is most pleasant for the moment. God defines good as that which moves us to being conformed to the image of his son and prepares us for our home in heaven. See, this promise does not say that we will always see or understand the good that God is doing. I don't know if I will ever understand why God allows the death of children. I don't know why natural disasters strike like they do. I will never understand the sudden upheaval that comes after a devastating and tragic accident. But just because I don't know and I don't understand does not mean that these things are not being used for God's purposes. On that day, I will understand On that day, I will be known as he is known. I will see him as he is. When I stand before him, then I will know. But this side of heaven, I don't know and I don't understand. But notice the condition of the promise in verse 28. God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. In other words, this is a promise that applies only to a true believer. The one who has been transformed by God and is being conformed to the image of his son. So we cannot tell everyone God is working things out for good. He's always working things out for good. That's not what the promise says. The promise says that God works all things for good in the life of the believer. You know, R.C. Sproul, he makes the point in a dramatic way. He declares that for the believer in Christ, there is no such thing as tragedy because ultimately any painful time will be a blessing from God. God will turn that into something good. God will make it into a blessing for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But on the other hand, the The converse of that is true as well. For the non-believer, every blessing is actually a tragedy in disguise because when a non-believer is blessed, they don't stop to thank God for what he has done. And so that blessing actually helps them feel more self-sufficient. And instead of bringing them closer to Christ and conforming to the image of God's son, it takes them further away towards themselves. And so it can be said, 
You know, that that blessing becomes a tragedy in disguise to a non-believer. And, and when they reject Christ, the, the, the best gift of all, the best blessing of all, when they reject him, it is the greatest tragedy of all. But the promise here, God promises that in life, in the life of the believer, that we, he will work everything. <laughs> I mean, Paul didn't write some. He didn't write, you know, a few. He didn't write, you know, this and that or occasionally. He said, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. All things. You know, we're all going through something with our family, with this, with that, with our job, whatever it might be. He works all things for, together for good. I love that. And this, this word, work together for good, in Greek it's one word and it's the word that we get our English word synergism from. Now that's kind of a big word, but the idea of various elements working together to perform an effective greater and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. In the physical world, it's like the right combination of otherwise harmful chemicals can produce substances that are extremely beneficial. For example, ordinary table salt is made up of two poisons, sodium and chlorine. And when you mix them together, there's a ionic bond that takes place and it becomes sodium chloride, which we use it to sprinkle on our food. It's used for a lot of different purposes as well. Picture in your mind a delicious chocolate cake. Oh, man. You know, on their own, many of the ingredients don't taste good. If you just grab a spoon and pick up some flour and start eating it, you know. However, when you mix these things together and they're combined together in the proper amounts and with the heat of the, the hot oven, they produce something that is a delightful taste sensation. And this is the promise that God will take the broken pieces of your life like broken shards of colored glass and combine them together into something beautiful like a breathtaking stained glass window. He will take our brokenness and make something beautiful from it. So how does this knowledge change the way we live? We need to understand that, that our suffering, the things we go through here on this earth is not futile. It's not futile. I say that it matters. What we go through matters. And there are times when we may feel like, man, God's just out to get us. He, I, don't, I don't understand why this is happening. And wave after wave of difficulty seems to wash over us. And the promise reminds us that even though we may be in the furnace of life's difficulties, God is using that furnace to refine us and to purify us. Even though we may feel like we're being hammered during difficult times, God is fashioning us into something beautiful and precious. You know, for the believer, 
This promise means that those difficult years leading to divorce were not wasted. Maybe God was teaching lessons about love and compassion that you could have learned no other way. Maybe those hard days when others rejected you in school are not without some benefit. Maybe God was creating you a heart of compassion. Maybe a, 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 a heart of, of, you know, so that you're not concerned about the approval of others. Or that tragic death to someone you love was not a waste. God has, has brought those whom belong to him into heaven. And this heartache may be causing, you know, fashioning in you a desire for heaven and to be with those who have gone before. Maybe even just to trust him more. And even if our country seems to be going in the wrong direction, God will use this situation for his good, for our good and his glory. I mean, he may use these things to to make us stop depending on political leaders and depend on him more. Maybe we can see that. Maybe we can understand that. Maybe he uses these things to wake up his people. Maybe these things he will use to accomplish something that we didn't realize needed to be accomplished. And sometimes God uses the painful times in our lives to impact the lives of those around us. I mean, I don't know right now what God is doing in your life. But if you are a child of God, you have his promise. Your suffering is not for nothing. He will use it for your good and for his glory. And what that means is this, if I can boil all this down, our best response to times of suffering is to trust God. We may not understand it, we may not, we may, may not get it, we may not fully grasp what is going on, but when we go through suffering, we need to understand that God is desiring us to trust him more. You know, there's nothing quite so annoying when you're facing a crisis and you have someone walk up to you and say, well, you just got to trust God. When you're in the storm, when you're in the fire, those aren't words of comfort. In times like these, we need someone to come up and put their arm around us, to pray for us, to ache with us. We don't really want these platitudes or cliches, even if they are good theology. The truth of the matter is in difficult and confusing and painful times, we are called to trust God. We must rely on solid theology rather than our experience or feelings. My feelings will take me to the side every time. You know, what I went through may not be what you're going through. I can't say I know exactly how you feel because I don't. There's always more variables in someone else's situation. We must hold on to his promises and rely on his character. Here's a simple theological construct. God is in control. God is in control. God loves me 
God loves me. God doesn't make mistakes. He knows where we're at and what we're going through. And really, when it comes right down to it, faith is pretty simple. Either you trust God or you don't. Either you put your faith and trust in him or you don't. There's no middle ground. There's no in between. You either trust God with your life here and all eternity or you don't trust him at all. See, God's promises to us is that he will work even with the bad, even with the evil, even with the painful circumstances in our lives. And he will weave something beautiful and help us to grow in our relationship with him. So if you hold on to his promise, this knowledge will change your perspective on life. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Let's pray. Loving Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you that you made a way where we could be reconciled to you. Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you gave. Father, you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Father, you did that for each one of us. But we must accept it. We must respond. So Father, I pray that this morning we would respond to you in faith. That we would trust you more for the circumstances of life that we're going through, for the pain and the heartache that we are enduring, for the persecution that we are taking on. Father, for the affliction. Father, for the illness, for for the bad relationship, for whatever it might be. Father, you understand and you know because you've already been through that. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would draw us to you. Holy Spirit, quicken our hearts, quicken our minds. Help us to trust you more. Father, I pray this morning that you would just move us from where we are to where you desire us to be. Father, I know that it is your will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Father, I pray that for your people. Father, that we would be a people who are quick to get on our knees in repentance to you. Father, to be a people who lead the way. Father, in our nation. To be a people who lead the way in our families. Father, that we would acknowledge you as our Savior and Lord. And Father, that knowing that would change 
the way we live each and every day. Father, thank you for loving us first. Guide us as we respond to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.